Thank you. Good morning. Happy Sabbath, everyone. I just praise God for the, the children's story, for the song, Pete for picking that song, and for Isaac for stepping in, and just everybody else involved. I, I didn't realize when we were practicing that song that um, I would actually kind of name the title of the sermon after it, Following Jesus. Uh, so before we go any further, let's just have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you are so gracious, Father. You have given us an opportunity to come before you, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to learn from your word, Father. And as we open up your word, I pray that you would enlighten us, Father. Send to us your Holy Spirit and your holy angels to be here for this message. And Father, I pray that the cross would be lifted up and that your son Jesus would be lifted up. And that all men would look to him for salvation. All men and women, children that have come here today, Father, would leave this place and looking to him as their sole purpose in life, as their uh, provider, Father. So give us this day our daily bread, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So I, I hope that today, uh, since the sun is not shining, you can go home with the sun of righteousness in your hearts today. Um, I wanted to say it's a beautiful day out, but you know it's still a beautiful day out because we have, we have Jesus as our Savior. Amen? And um, so today, I just entitled this sermon, Following Jesus. I wanted to keep it simple, and I felt that today we could just look at some of the stories of our Savior and just see how he interacted with people and his walk and his journey here in life. Recently, I had a conversation with someone, and uh, the conversation kind of went like this. David, you can't trust the Bible. You can't believe everything it says, and you really can't follow everything that it teaches. All you got to do, and I'm sure we've all heard this, just be like Jesus. Just love. Just love like Jesus did, and just be like him. It's that simple, David. And I thought, well, you kind of set up a contradiction, because what, what was just said was that, We want to be like Jesus, but we don't need to read the word of God that tells us what the life of Jesus was all about. And so I I just humbly shared that with the person. I said the first response I had was, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And after that was said, there was really nothing else said on the other party's behalf. I, I shared, look, you just mentioned that we should be like Jesus, right? We should be like Jesus. We should act like Jesus, portray the life of Jesus. But if you're saying that I should be like Jesus and just be like Jesus, and don't worry about reading this word, then my question is, where can I find the words of God? Where can I find words that proceedeth out of the mouth of God? There is nowhere else but in his word. Now, if we say we want to believe in Jesus... We have to believe in what he said and how he lived. It's not enough just to say, claim it by, hey, I believe in Jesus, now I'm okay. Because 2 Timothy 3.16, verse 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for reproof, which we don't necessarily like. For correction, we don't like that either. But it's also for instruction and righteousness that the man of God can be made complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I would just encourage you to live in the Word of God so that the Word of God can live in you. Now, several stories that would define the life of Jesus we'll look at today. And since 
I, I felt, let's, let me talk about something that I'm a little bit familiar with. Early in my Christian walk, I studied the book of John. Recently, we've been studying it on Wednesday night, so it's been very helpful. But today, if you'd like to look at some of the stories, we're going to look at John chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 8. I'm just going to go through them briefly and summarize them. Jesus was baptized by John at the Jordan. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. He called forth four fishermen as his disciples, and he taught, healed, and forgave many people. And one of the very interesting stories we find is in the book of John, chapter 3, and it's, in, it's about Nicodemus and the new birth. And I just think we all, at some point in our life, have gone through some sort of experience where God has touched our lives, and that's why we're here today. Amen? I'm going to read, paraphrase some of this, but in verse 1, it states that Nicodemus was a highly respected ruler of the Jews. He was very knowledgeable. He knew, though, he was missing something inside. After all of his schooling, after everything he learned, he still knew something was missing, which in verse 2, which is what brought him to Jesus by night. He wanted to come privately. He didn't want the other religious leaders to look down on him. Uh, verse 2, Nicodemus asks, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. And no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answers to him and says, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus responds, he's probably a little confused. He says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? But Jesus answers and says, Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He goes on and he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you need to have a complete transformation. There's something that needs to happen inside of you, Nicodemus. In Matthew 5.3, we're told, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Nicodemus had to have had something inside. He felt poor in spirit. He felt something missing. He felt needy for Christ, which is what brought him and drew him there. Nicodemus also understood his words. And this was interesting when I was reading it this time through. I didn't catch this before. But when Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it. You cannot tell where it comes from, where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I have to believe that Nicodemus thought for a moment, wait a minute, he's speaking my language. I came here tonight privately for a reason, and he's talking about the wind blowing me? Like It's almost like he's telling me, talking to me about my story. Verse 16, we have the very famous scripture, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's probably the most famous scripture, and I hope that we all have that memorized. Very easy, popular scripture. It goes on to say in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And that was Jesus' ministry when he was here on earth, healing and touching, saving and seeking the lost. Nicodemus saw Jesus 
as one sent by God. He was a witness to Jesus' ministry and everything that Jesus had done. Nicodemus was there able to see it. And when he saw the cleansing of the temple, when he saw Jesus flip the tables and rebuke the money changers and those who were at the temple that day, it was at that point Nicodemus said, there's something special about this man, and I have to seek him out, and I have to find out what it is about him. I mean, Nicodemus even realized this very well could be the Messiah. This could be the chosen one. Nicodemus saw Jesus as one sent by God, and he believed by faith. He also stood up to the religious leaders at the time that were trying to manipulate circumstances to uh, find fault with Jesus. But Nicodemus was one of Jesus' defenders. When they were questioning in councils together privately what we're going to do with this man, Nicodemus warned the leaders, we ought to be careful because if this man is a prophet of God, if it is truly sent by God, we ought to be careful. Look what happened to us in the past. Our entire nation suffered. We're, they were, we were taken into bondage and slavery because we refused to listen to the prophets. Nicodemus was a seeker of truth, and there was no one that was going to stop him. John seventeen seventeen says, Sanctify them by your truth. Thy word is truth. And Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There is nothing hidden before God. And there's nothing we should hide from God. We should, just, we should be giving him everything, giving him in our all. And again, I'll say, I'll repeat this phrase several times, I challenge you to live in the word of God so the word of God can live in you. Another story that teaches us about the life of Jesus is John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. And in this conversation, Jesus simply is asking her for a drink. And he takes this conversation and he turns it into living water, eternal salvation, and he peaks within her an interest. Her immediate response is, though, she says, how is it, how is it that you being a Jew ask me, a Samaritan woman for a drink. How is that possible? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But Jesus looked past something. He looked past prejudice. He had no prejudice. It didn't matter where this woman was. It doesn't matter what nationality she belonged to. It didn't matter how her forms of worship. Jesus simply says to her, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see, Jesus is arousing an interest in this woman. He's beginning to speak about eternal things, spiritual things. But before she could receive salvation, before she could understand who this person was, she first needed to recognize her sin and her need for a Savior. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. I believe Nicodemus, I believe this woman at the well, and the other stories that we're going to read about were people who were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Jesus goes on to say to this woman, whoever drinks of the water, that is the water at Jacob's well, they're talking about Jacob's well, which was very important to them, very special. He says, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give will become in him a fountain of of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, Jesus knew personal information about this woman, but it didn't matter what she had done. It didn't matter her past. didn't matter the life she was currently living. He basically sees her 
for a lost, hurt child of God. She, too, sees him as one sent by God, which just changes her life. She sees that he's even greater than Jacob. What he has to provide is better than this well that we come to drink from. And he reveals himself to her, and she recognizes who he is, the Son of God, the Savior. And this conversation changes her life forever. And I I just hope that every time we read the stories of Jesus, every time we read these scriptures, our lives are changed. I pray we don't walk away from these scriptures and and it it has no effect on us. But just take from this story that Jesus showed no prejudice. Do we show prejudice? Amen. I mean, we could, we could talk about it all day. We could show prejudice, if, you know, nationality, race, uh, finance, how much money somebody has, what they dress like, how they look, political, uh, you know, issues, you, you name it. But Jesus looked past these things, and he wanted to reach the soul. He wanted to know intimately about the person so he could bring healing and restoration to their life. Now, I'd like to point out something in this these scriptures here so far, we're reading about water. Jesus is talking about water. And in the, the context of the sanctuary, if you were to look at the context of the sanctuary for a moment and think of the most holy place and the holy place, this is where Jesus would have departed from to come to this earth. He would have gone to the courtyard. Now, Jesus would have passed by the table of showbread and come down to become the bread of life. He would have passed by the seven-branch candlestick to come down to become the light of the world and passed by the altar of incense to become the way, the truth, and the life that no man comes to the Father but by him. In the courtyard, what is the first article he would have passed leaving the sanctuary? The labor, baptism. The very first thing that Jesus did when he started his ministry was the baptism ultimately led him to the altar, which was the cross, where the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was slain. Jesus was our example. He was our example every step of the way. In another story in regards to water, or what Jesus is talking about, eternal life, we find in John chapter 5. And I love this story. Because when I first read it years ago, something jumped out at me, and I'll share it with you in a little bit. But the man healed at the pool called in Hebrew, Bethesda, which simply means the house of kindness. What better place for Jesus to perform a miracle than in a house of kindness? And on that Sabbath day, which it was in verse 3, it says that there lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. Now, what were they waiting for the movement of the water for? Because they actually believed that an angel would come down and stir the water up in the pool. Whoever jumped in first, after the stirring of that water, would be healed of whatever disease they had. Now, it says in verse 5, a certain man, certain man who was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him laying there, and Jesus knew he had already been in that condition for a long time, He says to this person, do you want to be made well? Now, let that sit for a minute, and let's make that personal. I asked Dave, Dave, do you want to be made well? The original King James Version is, do you want to be made whole? But the man, crazily enough, he comes up with this excuse. He says, sir, 
I have no one to put me in the pool. When, when the water stirred up and I try to get in, people just pile over me. Actually, the, the original language says that people are trampling over me. It's like he's making an excuse. I can't get better. There's too much going on. I just can't do this. Now, I want to, this is a footnote. Many people who try to make it to that pool, they actually perished. They died before they even got there. Imagine what that was like for people that actually lived. Think about the homeless that we see in our country. These people lived around this pool just waiting to be healed. And here it is, the Son of God comes to this man on a Sabbath day. Which all the more reason for the authorities to be angry with Jesus. Now Jesus says to this man, after he makes an excuse of not being able to get in, I can't get in, nobody's there to help me. Um, it's too hard, too difficult, people are trampling, trampling over me. Jesus simply says to him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately, it says, and immediately the man was made well, he took up his bed, and he walked. Not too long afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, it's interesting, uh, another footnote is that this individual's sickness or this disease was his own doing. It was partially from his own sin. And also, his anxiety for wanting to get better and wanting to be healed, it just wore away at him. It chipped away at every last remnant of his strength. There was literally nothing left in him until Jesus speaks the words, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. You see, the man's faith, Listen to this. The man's faith took hold of God's word. He took hold of, of Jesus' word. He believed in it. Every nerve and muscle was given new life, and his crippled limbs came alive. He sets his will, or he purposes in his heart, you could say, to obey the Messiah. And his life changed forever because he chose to listen to what Jesus had to say. So it's not enough to listen to what he has to say, what the Word of God says. We actually have to do something about it. We actually have to live it out. We have to let Christ come and dwell within us because we can't do anything on our own. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. Now, have you ever had someone motivate you? Have you ever had someone give you a message or just give you powerful words and all you could do, the only thing you could do was say, I'm going to do just what they said. And what have I got to lose? It, it, it sounds like what they're saying is true. I, I had an incident earlier in the year where I had somebody actually come to me and was talking to me about fasting. And he's he's really believes in his heart that we should practice a, a, a three-day fast, a 10-day fast, 20, 40 days. And I said, whoa, wait a minute. I go, 40 days is kind of serious. I mean, I mean, Jesus did it, but you think we are really capable of it? His words were, Dave, you could save your family. Do you want to save your family? And it was those words I said, I do. I do, really. And I began to practice a fast that weekend after I spoke to this man. And I didn't realize a family member of mine was about to suffer. So here I am listening to somebody encouraging me after the pattern and life of Jesus. And I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do a juice fast. First time I ever did a juice fast. And I didn't realize that very weekend some catastrophe came upon my family and I was need I needed to be in that condition to be able to pray for that person's salvation. 
See, Jesus' heart longed to heal the sick and the diseased, to preach the gospel to the poor, restore sight to those who are spiritually blind, to heal the brokenhearted, to set at liberty the oppressed. But most importantly, most importantly, Jesus wanted to grant forgiveness and grace to the sin-sickened soul so that we as sinners can be made whole. That's the truth about every Everything that Jesus did was all about the other person. It was all about lifting that person up, bringing that person to the cross, bringing that person closer to to Jesus. Now, I just wanted to add this in here just to kind of set up the next chapter. We're going to read chapter 8 in a moment. Day after day, these priests and Pharisees, they watched and they invented new ways to entrap Jesus. They even wanted to stop him by violence if they could. And we know that, obviously, from what happened at the cross. They wanted to humble this rabbi, this Galilean rabbi. They wanted to humble him before the people. Now, ever since this healing at the pool of Bethesda, that's when they begin plotting against Jesus. But they themselves were breaking the very law that they proclaimed that they were upholding. They saw themselves, actually. They saw themselves in conflict with infinite power. Have you ever had an incident where you were maybe interacting with someone and they told you something and you knew it was the word of God and you knew it was true, but inside you just, you just felt like you had to fight against it? Your sinful nature wanted to fight against it. That's what these religious hypocrites, so to speak, were doing to Jesus. These people would not be warned. They'd rather maintain their influence over the people than submit to the character and the authority of Christ. Now, before every, every, every single one of us, every single one of us has to make a decision between light and darkness, between truth and error, between right and wrong, and that's the same thing with every person that we come in contact with, whether it be amongst ourselves, whether it be with family members, uh, people from other churches, denominations, religions, whatever it is, We all have to make a conscientious effort to decide and discern the truth. God doesn't want us to decide from emotions. He doesn't want us to decide from what we've done in the past. He wants us to decide by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Now, had the Jewish leaders at the time that Jesus was walking the earth, had they actually put aside their own prejudice? Had they compared the prophecies with with the life of Jesus? they would have seen a complete cohesive harmony between the word of God and the very life that this man was exhibiting. Um, and and this, this is the same today. It's the same today. Many uh, teachers are deceived today. Many of people that stand in the pulpit are deceived today, the same way as the Jews. They read, people will read the Bible in the light of their own knowledge and understanding and even amongst their own traditions. And they they don't search the scriptures. They just give up their authority. They give up their conscience to whatever leader, whoever is teaching. They commit their judgment and their souls to another. And so what I say here today is don't just, just because I'm preaching something today, don't just take it home and say, oh, I, I know Dave. Dave's a good person, and I like Dave, and it's okay. Test it to the scriptures. I just want you to. Really, we have to. John 7, 17 says, If any man willeth to do his will, he shall know of the teaching. That is, if you want to be in harmony with Christ, you will understand the truth. But hardened as these leaders' hearts were, the Pharisees, the scribes, their hearts were melted by the words of Jesus. 
while he was speaking in the temple court, those that lingered by, there were those that would try to find fault with Jesus. They would try to trip him up, ask him questions so he could say something that they could use against him. But while they went to listen to Jesus, even some of the religious leaders, as they stood there in his presence and they heard his words, they actually saw humanity flooded with the glory of divinity. They stood entranced. And when they went back, and the rulers and the priests, the Pharisees would say, why haven't you brought him to us? They totally forgot. I I actually forgot what I was going there for. After what this man said, their response to the religious rulers of those days were, never a man spake like this. Never a man spake in this way. But they stifled the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so we come to our uh, final story. Maybe focus a little more on this one because I kind of set this up. Uh, John chapter 8 and the story of the woman caught in adultery. It says in verse 2, early in the morning, Jesus went to the temple. And it says, all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then a group of scribes and Pharisees approached him. These men were devoid of any human pity. Let me just say that first and foremost. They were totally dead set against this man. They could not stand Jesus. Dragged with them a woman who was so terrified and pushing her into his presence with a hypocritical show of respect. They say to him, Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say, Jesus? And they said this to test him. As I said, so they could find something against him. But interestingly enough, Jesus saw what they were doing. And Jesus knew it was actually the husband's duty to bring both parties, both sinners. And also, if he condemns this woman, he is actually going to be accused of assuming authority that only belongs to Rome. If he pardons this woman... He actually will be accused of rejecting the law of Moses. So they've put Jesus in a position. They've cornered him. And they probably think, now we've really got him. However, Jesus, again, meets them. He meets them on their battlefield. He doesn't change the game. He just goes along with it. This is okay. I can handle this. This is okay. It's interesting that he just stoops down. And he starts writing. The Bible says he starts writing down on the ground with his finger. As though it says he didn't hear a word they were saying. Didn't matter to him. And as the accusers, as his accusers persisted, come on, Jesus, give us an answer. Tell us. Tell us what should be done. Their eyes looked down at the feet of Jesus. And and guess what? The expressions on their faces changed. Everything changed. Because written before them were the very guilty secrets of their own lives. He raises himself up and says to them, He who is without sin among you, let him cast a stone at her. And again, he stoops down and he writes on the ground. And in verse 9 of John chapter 8, it says, Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. It's interesting, the oldest left first, it says, because I believe the older you are, the more sin you've been involved in in life doesn't matter if you're in the church or whatever. We all have a struggle. Amen. And um, I, I just thought, imagine what, what, could, what could Jesus have been writing? Maybe he was writing hypocrite. 
Uh, maybe he was writing adultery. Maybe they were guilty of the same crime. Whatever it was, they just got up and they walked away until there was no one left. And when Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman was there, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, Lord. Now, when I first read that, I thought, Maybe she's asking a question. Maybe she's saying, No one, Lord. Don't, do you not condemn me either? And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, in the presence of infinite purity, that woman's heart was melted. But in that same presence, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were exposed for their hypocrisy. The woman had stood before Jesus just cowering in fear. I I can't imagine if someone says, he who is without sin cast a stone at Dave. I can't imagine with, you know, just standing there, just waiting. This woman was standing there waiting for her death. It was like a death sentence when she heard Jesus say those words. However, she was astonished to see as Jesus was writing in the sand that her accusers were departing. They were departing speechless, confused. They didn't have an argument. They didn't know what to say. And then Jesus says these words to her, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Her heart was melted and she threw herself at the feet of Jesus. With gratitude and bitter tears, she confessed her sins before her loving Savior. Now this was to her the beginning of a new life, a life of purity, of peace, and a life devoted to the service of God. In the uplifting of this fallen soul, Jesus performs a greater miracle than in healing the worst physical disease. He cures the spiritual disease which leads to eternal death. This penitent woman becomes one of his most faithful followers. And in pardoning her, in par- listen, in pardoning her, in forgiving her her sins, he encourages her to live a better life. He doesn't say, no, I'm sorry, you... That's a pretty bad sin. No, he, he encourages her to go and sin no more. And I want to say this. I'll use this word. This, this delinquent woman had only, for her, contempt and scorn. And it's the same for those of us who choose to follow Christ. We're going to get nothing but contempt and scorn from the world. However, Jesus always speaks to his children words of comfort, of hope, and forgiveness. Because 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's exactly what I believe happened to each and every one of these individuals that we read in the stories today. The Bible says his mercies are new every morning. Jesus did not suppress one word of truth, he uttered it always in love. He was never rude never spoke a severe word, never gave needless pain to a sensitive soul. However, he denounced hypocrisy, unbelief, and iniquity. He spoke the truth, but always in love. The Bible says, as our scripture reading says today, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It goes on to say that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
The Bible states that we should walk in the Spirit and not after the lusts of the flesh. And the works of the Spirit can only be the works that Jesus exhibited. That's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And against such of those things there is no law, or there is no condemnation who live godly in Christ Jesus. And so I just give you this today to encourage you or to give you a little bit of a challenge that maybe some of us have slipped away, okay? Maybe, maybe I've slipped away to an extent in my life. Maybe some of you out there at maybe one point are struggling with something or maybe today are struggling, uh, whether it be with family, jobs, certain things that are happening in your life. And that's why Jesus said to the church in Revelation, the first church of Ephesus, you have left your first love. Repent and do your first works. And I just think for each and every one of us, let's, let's try to think about what was it like when we first met Jesus? What was it like when we came to him, we fell in love with him? And it was like we talked about him constantly. Maybe there are some of us today that need to maybe experience that again. Maybe at times we become indifferent to God, or maybe we just become too comfortable in life. I mean, there's so many comforts in this nation that we have. I mean, we're, we're blessed beyond measure. But maybe sometimes we're too comfortable. Maybe that's what happened this past year. Maybe we were too comfortable, and God used this event to stir us up. Amen. To the Laodicean lukewarm church, God says, to them who are neither hot nor cold, thinking they are rich, wealthy, and need of nothing. He says, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And the sad part is, if we fall under that condition, we don't even know it sometimes. So I just ask if there are any things that God wants to work out in your life. Maybe there are some sins, maybe there are some mindsets, or things that he wants to just chip away at. Just give it over to him. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. And each one of these individuals, whether it be Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman at the well, whether it be the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, or whether it be the woman caught in adultery, each and every one of these stories, that individual was saved by grace. They met Jesus, they were pardoned of their sin, and they rejoiced to say, I'm forgiven. I can live a new life. I don't have to live in the gutter anymore. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And so I just want to encourage each and every one of you to hold on to the word. Hold on to the stories of our Lord and Savior. Apply it to our heart. Let it actually become something that we live out. And I'll just close with prayer before we have our closing song. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray that these words would go forth and touch the hearts of your children. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to dwell with your people as we await your return. Let us not lose hope, Father. Let us not grow weary of doing good works. 
But Father, let us hold on to the arms of grace. Let us hold on to our Savior, who when it all is said and done, will be the only thing that we have in this world to hold on to, would be your Son and your Word and your truth. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.